0: Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Those of you who are new, a couple weeks ago or last week we completed a long period of time studying the book of 1 Corinthians and we're going to do something today and for the next four weeks that is unusual for us, which is we're going to have uh, sermons on a theme. And the theme is the Protestant Reformation. At the end of this month, we will hit the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Five centuries of time now being able to worship in churches that believe in salvation through, by grace through faith alone. And faith in Christ alone. And we take this for granted. We think that this is what everybody believes, but it's not what everyone believes. And in a Facebook generation, we don't want to hear about everybody else because then we'd have to think whether we're right and they're wrong, and that's a hill too high for us now. We don't want to think about right and wrong. But I want us, the next few weeks, the pastors, the elders want us to meditate on the gift of the Protestant Reformation. It is a wonderful gift. The reason that it's 500 years is that we date the Reformation from the time when a young priest named Martin Luther in the town of uh, Wittenberg in Germany wrote out 95 theses or 95 propositions, 95 arguments. And he put them on the doors of all the churches in, in Wittenberg and he sent it out as a letter to the Bishop of Mainz. And he did that on October 31. And so we celebrate October 31 as Reformation Day and this is the 500th anniversary It was back in 1517. And so, over the course of the next few Sundays, we're going to study the major defining characteristics of the Protestant Reformation. This week, we're going to look at the faith of our fathers, our Reformation fathers, specifically on the issue of Scripture. For the last few decades, there have been uh, Latin um, phrases that have been used in Protestant churches that are reformed in this country, mostly in this country. And they don't come from the Reformation. They're actually sort of a, a mongrel group of things that were patched together. And this is who we are. And at the beginning of this church, we put those five Latin phrases on the front of our bulletin every Sunday, all right? And one of those phrases, and really the foundational one, is sola scriptura. Now, the word sola is Latin and it makes you feel intelligent, right? But Latin actually is a dead language, okay? It's dead. And so, can we just say only? You know? Only, only scripture or scripture alone. So, that's where we're going to start. Why do we start with scripture alone? Well, because all the other arguments stand or fall on the basis of what God says in his word. Not what your friends say on Facebook. Not what some famous celebrities say in their, in their conferences and their books. Scripture alone. And so Martin Luther, there came a day they tried to kill him. They wanted to kill him. It's always been true of the leaders that God has put his stamp of approval on that the world wants to kill him. All right, They wanted to kill him. And it came down to the diet of worms All right, and the key moment in that. He stood on scripture. He said, Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. And he knew that his life was on the line when he said those things. He wouldn't budge. So why? Well, because Martin Luther said, Scripture alone is my authority. Now, he didn't mean by that that the church had no authority over him. What he meant was that if the church's authority was in contradiction to Scripture, he would always choose Scripture. Now, let me, let me back up and, 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 and talk to you a little bit about my life. Um, Back when Mary Lee and I got married, we moved to Madison. We were still sort of hippie-ish. And uh, so we moved to Madison and enrolled in University of Wisconsin, Madison, and I decided that I was gonna take a class in literature because I'd grown up in an editor-publisher's house and I thought, you know, Mary Lee and I had done our whole dating routine on the phone talking about the novels we were reading. You know, and so we loved books. We loved reading. So I thought I'm going to take a class in the English lit class in the English literature department. So I saw in the syllabus uh, a course that was called Melville, Twain, and Hawthorne, and I thought, yeah, that sounds like a sounds like a great class. You know. And and I'm going to take that class. So I showed up for the class, and it wasn't a lecture. It was actually a tiny seminar. It was an upper-level class. I didn't learn. You know, I went skiing once out in Idaho. I was hitchhiking through Idaho, and this guy wanted to stop skiing. I didn't know they had ways of grading slopes. And so I took the the lifts the whole way to the top. But I didn't know about the signs. And I wasn't a good skier. And so I fell the, the whole way down the mountain. The entire way I just fell, I stood up, and of course there's a slope like this, and so i stand up, fall, stand up, fall, stand up, fall, the whole way down the mountain, right? Well, I didn't know that they had ways of grading courses in universities, and so I signed up for a title that I thought was good. I didn't look at the fact that it, I hadn't learned to look at what level the course was, right? I show up, and it's the chairman of the English department teaching. And there were a bunch of grad students there, and this was my first class. And the grad students all had hard briefcases, and they had like earmuffs hanging from their briefcases and slide rules, and they wore, you know, galoshes on their shoes, you know, and they were sitting in a circle. And we proceeded during that class to discuss messianic imagery in Mark Twain. And it's just, I sat there with my eyes crossed thinking that I'd walked into the ozone layer, you know? I kept fantasizing about what it would be like to be Mark Twain and listening to these dudes discussing messianic imagery, you know? You know, it was just the weirdest thing. (laughs) I never went back. And so I went back to the syllabus and found another class, and I found one in the history department, and it was called this. So from Melville, Twain, and Hawthorne, I went to... Medieval, Intellectual, and Social History with William J. Courtney. And I'm telling you, woo, again, I didn't look at the level of the class. The, the, the textbook was Copleston's History of Philosophy. If any of you know anything about that series, <laughs> yikes. So you're all sympathetic to me now, right? Okay. And I never will forget the day that Courtenay, Professor Courtenay, who was not a believer, lectured on the Waldensians. My guess is that hardly any of you have ever heard of the Waldensians, but you should have because it's your patrimony. And you say, what's patrimony? And I say, that's the inheritance you get from your father's. That's why we call this series Faith of Our Fathers, and this week it is The Faith of Our Fathers, it's Sola Scriptura. And so William J. Courtney, is pagan, UW Madison is lecturing on Peter Waldo and the Waldensians. Peter Waldo was a merchant son, very wealthy, who lived in Lyons, or Lyon, in France, about 300 miles uh, outside of Paris. And Peter Waldo was um, from a wealthy family, and his father wanted him to fall in that tradition. But Peter Waldo was born again by the Spirit of God. Can I get an amen? He was born again by the Spirit of God. And because this was done by the Spirit of God and not by the Pope and his minions, Peter Waldo did what? He read what Jesus said. And so he sold everything he had and gave it to the poor. And then what did he do? Well, then he went out on the streets and began to preach. And then what did he do? Well, he began to paraphrase the Bible and read it to people. Because back then in the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church had the Bible chained inside the church. They didn't let ignorant people read it because that would be dangerous. It was on the Pope's, at the time of the Reformation, it was on the Pope's list of forbidden books. You were not allowed to have a Bible unless you had the training they gave you so that you wouldn't believe the Bible, which is what we call seminary today. I'm absolutely serious. I'm absolutely serious. I mean, not really, but... It's dangerous to have a retired pastor in the front row because you begin to have these conversations with him. What would you call seminary? I always get it mixed up with cemetery. Seminary, cemetery, you know? (laughs) Seminary is where you get your training as a pastor. You get the union card, which is the Masters of Divinity degree. All right, now. So, Peter Waldo sold everything he had, gave it to the poor, he began to preach publicly, and he did a paraphrase of the Bible. And I'm sitting in this lecture class, there were probably about a couple hundred people, and my mind's blowing. I'm sitting there thinking, whoa, back in 1175, you had a man who heard God was born again by the Spirit, and he said, "Give them the Bible." And I thought, "How come nobody's ever told no, nobody's, no, nobody's ever told me about Peter Waldo?" And I changed my major to history, and I never looked back because I thought finally, somewhere, that I can get loose of all this cotton candy that's trying to paralyze me today. Sometime when people believed the Word of God, when people acted in ways that they could never take back because they had read the Word of God, people, and of course, it took them about 40 years, but they did manage to excommunicate Peter Waldo and all the people that had listened to the gospel from them, and in a few centuries, at the time of the Reformation, they almost slaughtered them all. They, they almost wiped them off the face of the earth. Now, here's the deal. Peter Waldo, I found out when I went home to my father in law, whom I love dearly, who did the Living Bible. I went home and I said to him, Dad, do you know about Peter Waldo? And he said, Tim do you know what Peter's middle name is? I said, no. He said, Waldo. So his second son, he named Peter Waldo Taylor. And this was before he'd ever had any thoughts of doing a paraphrase of the Bible. I went, whoa! And I began to be liberated from the cloying, sentimental, emotional muck of American Christianity. I began to realize that, that God is God and that he has deposited his truth in the Bible and that that's something nobody can take from you. No one! <laughs> and so it was quite the transition from hippie to fundamentalist. Mary Lee said to me a number of times in those years, I didn't know who I was marrying. I thought you had long hair. <laughs> I also had a pierced steer, And I fell in love with church history. Then I took Reformation history from Robert Kingdon, one of the preeminent Calvin scholars of our time. Did you know that the Waldensians, when the Reformation happened, centuries afterwards, three centuries, do you know that the Waldensians said about the Calvinists, about Geneva and Switzerland, they said, that's who we are. And largely, they just simply folded back into the Protestant Reformation. And you got John Huss, and you have Wycliffe, Wycliffe Bible translators, right? All these people are your heritage, and every single one of them condemned as idolatrous the Roman Catholic Church. And they live on. They live on in the hearts of every man and every woman and every child who has heard the voice of God saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the one thing the Roman Catholic Church will never give you. And they won't even give it to you after you've died because then you go to purgatory. Do you understand me? I'm sitting talking to the salesman and the salesman's wife has has a tumor. And I say to him, you know, I think I've met you before. And he said, well, I used to be an aide to uh, John Hostetler. Hostetler, the, you remember, our representative. And that was where I had met him. And I said, what have you been doing since then? And he said, well, I've been a missionary. I said, really, where? And he said, over over among, are you ready? The The Waldensians. I go, whoa, the Waldensians, and we have this wonderful conversation out at TNT Reparables about the Waldensians, you know. It's mind-boggling. Listen, God has his people everywhere. God has his people everywhere, and you can recognize them because they say, Scripture alone leads me By grace alone, through faith alone, to trust in Christ alone. And here's this man, and he's been a missionary to the Waldensians because now the Waldensians have to be evangelized. And isn't that the way it goes? As soon as you have children, you have to evangelize them. All through history, there has been a competition. And the competition is what? The fundamental battle in this life is between those who want religion to be an an issue of morality that brings them money and an issue of the mercy of God that brings you suffering, the cross, and poverty. And never the twain shall meet. You don't begin to understand the battle between... Now, I can easily be misunderstood about this, but I'm going to say it anyhow. You don't begin to understand the battle in America today over Donald Trump until you understand that. Because on one side are those that are just simply despised. Trump and all his supporters... On the other side are highly moral people who do not smoke who aren't hooked on opioids, are you with me? Are you with me? Who have the high moral value of college degrees, who don't divorce, who have at most two children, who don't litter, who wear their safety belts always, who don't chew, and don't go with boys who do, okay? Now, am I in favor of all those things? Am I against college education? No, that's not my point. My point is the world is always selling its morality to you. What changes are what the laws are. But the laws are always everywhere, and they're the way that you save yourself, And so what you have is uneducated people battling educated people in America today. And the educated people have their set of morality. And the uneducated people have their sort of morality. And it's a conflict, and it takes everybody's eyes off the ball. Nobody's thinking about how hopeless it is for any of us to please God. Because you've got... You've got the uneducated against the educated. You've got the sort of Republicans against the Democrats, you know, and then you've got in the middle the libertarians who are worse than both sides. Be- and, and it's all morality. They all have their sets of morality, and nobody is speaking of the, of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You can't mention the Bible. You can't mention Jesus on your Facebook page. You can't mention it in the op ed pages. You can't mention it in the Federalist. You can't mention the Bible anywhere. Because the minute you do, what happens? Well, everybody says, there you go, proof texting again. What are you, some kind of Bible thumper? And so all of us as Christians are just wanting so much that people approve of us. I just want you to like me, please! That we never, ever quote what God himself said. We don't even quote it to our children. And yet, we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, the formal principle of which is sola scriptura. All my life, I've had friends who look down on Scripture and claim to be Christians, and they judge the Word of God. They show it has problems here, problems here. It doesn't deal with the problem of evil, and they're angst because of the problem of evil, and they just want to deal with these things, you know? And I always say to them, would you please look at how Jesus speaks of the Word of God? Would you look at how Jesus honors the Word of God? Would you look at how often the gospel writers say, and thus scripture was fulfilled about the Word of God? Jesus never stopped quoting the Word of God. Should that be an indication how central to our lives and witness the Word of God should be? When Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, each time he was tempted, what did he do? From memory, he quoted scripture. But, but you're so much stronger than Jesus is that you really don't need scripture. You'll just make an argument based on natural theology, right? General revelation, nature, right? Right? Jesus needed to quote his own word, but you don't have to. Why is there no quoting of scripture in Facebook? why don't you quote scripture? Huh? Why? Well, part of the reason is that much of Facebook is about proving how smart we are. Or how sensitive, and I'm not sure which is worse. Can you imagine trying to get likes on Facebook by quoting the Apostle Paul? And, you know, we look down on specific writers of Scripture and think that they lived in a different time when you could just be nasty and people liked you being nasty. And then you read the Apostle Paul and you find him being what we would call nasty and you realize his nastiness is the only possible thing he could have done because of his love for the souls he was writing to. And then we remember our dads who disciplined us and we realize that discipline was more love than our mother's goodnight kisses and all the cotton candy of the world but we still don't quote scripture now let me tell you another story why did luther write 95 theses why did he want to have a hoedown of an argument Well, here's the deal. At that time, there was a pope, Pope Leo X. And this pope had aspirations. You know what aspirations are, right? It's what forces you to live in a certain way after you've left your parents' home. Keep that in your mind, okay? The whole purpose of having children is to live out your aspirations through the children, right? In other words... Pope Leo really wanted some things and he had to figure out how to get them. Now, what did Pope Leo want? Well, he wanted, in Rome, a really fancy church. He wanted a church that was so fancy, so gilded, so lavish, so beautiful that every homeschooling mother in every classical Christian school spends a good part of each day teaching the children the beauty of Pope Leo. But they call it Michelangelo. You know how we all look at his paintings and we just, we're just we just so enamored of all the beauty of the Middle Ages, all the cathedrals and the flying buttresses and all this stuff, you know? It's just gorgeous, you know? How come my Baptist church never gave me anything like that? Well, the Roman Catholics gave it to him right? And so what he did was he thought, you know what I need to do is I need to figure out a way of getting all the poor people to give us money so that we can continue to gild St. Peter's Basilica, which they were building, with gold, and so that we can keep Michelangelo on his back painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Because it costs money to have the top artists of the world working, right? And so he came up with a scheme, and the scheme was called indulgences, uh, which kind of means kindnesses, all right? You know, the indulgent grandmother that gives you candy all the time. So they were selling candy to the masses. This particular candy was the way that you got out of purgatory. Now what was purgatory? Well, you won't find it in the Bible. Purgatory was the torment that you go through after death until such time as that torment has produced in you enough righteousness that you're able to enter heaven. So it's helpful in that there's an intermediate stage between death and judgment. The Bible says in Hebrews it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment, but not to the Roman Catholic Church. What they do is they come up with immediate state. And in the immediate state, they produced torment, and they sent out preachers from the Vatican, preachers from Rome, who, who preached on the torments of purgatory and said, if you give me money, you put money in the coffer here, in, in, in their safe, in their box. You put money in the coffin, and I will, through the Pope, through the treasury of merit, I will apply that money, okay? I will apply that money to the account of your loved ones in purgatory. Okay? And don't worry about how it works. And yeah, nobody's ever seen purgatory. Trust us. This is the tradition of the church. You can trust us because we're the people that, um, what would you say, uh, who know how these things work. Okay? Okay? And so, the man that came to Germany was a guy named uh, Johannes Tetzel, and this is, you know how uh, all salesmen have their patter? You know, you go to look at a car in a new car dealer, and the the guy says to you, what would it take to get you in that car? Right? And you know, a life insurance salesman says, you have a wife, you have children, do you love them? Wouldn't you want, what would you, don't you you think that you should do something that provides for their future? In case, heaven forbid, something would happen to you. Happen, death, right? And so you're all softened up. Well, that's precisely what Tetzel was doing. Tetzel was saying, do you have loved ones who have died? Everybody's, yeah. Well, you know where they are. They're all in purgatory. Of course, none of them were in hell. They're all in purgatory, and if you will give me a little bit of money... We can spring them. It's like a get out of purgatory free card, right? And this was literally what he said. History is very clear. He said, as soon as the coins in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. This is what he preached. I'll read it again. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Okay, this is is actually true. Now, let me ask you, is this a religion that you would follow? And of course, you know that the right answer is no, never. And I say to you, are you sure? What if, like, getting baptized and taking the Lord's Supper could save you? What if being a church member and getting baptized and taking the Lord's Supper would save you? Would that be a good bargain? I'm going to tell you that I think it would be. I'm going to tell you that, honestly, that sounds a lot, lot nicer than this religious thing that I'm into. I'm I'm going to tell you that that is a superior religion to my religion. If it's true. Because my religion requires me to take up my cross and follow Jesus. My religion tells me there's no hope for me. My religion tries constantly to impress upon me how little hope there is for me. My religion requires me to come under conviction of sin so regularly that you just want to shoot yourself. (laughs) Any of you want to shoot yourself? Be honest. Yesterday, in the last couple of days, I've been working on talks that Mary Lee, my wife, is going to give at a conference. And so yesterday I'm working on this talk. She's written them, but, you know, I'm kind of, you know, whatever I'm doing. And I spent most of yesterday on one talk, and the talk was Loving Outside the Box. So it's Mary Lee getting on her high horse about how to love people. And it's completely depressing. And finally, after dinner, I I looked at her and I said, I said, woman, I'm the head of the home, and you be quiet! I've had just about enough out of you. Now, this is a joke, right? (laughs) What I actually said to her is, Lover, (laughs) reading you teaching these women is is like so convicting. You know, I would much rather have baptism in the Lord's Supper save me. Wouldn't you? You know, just just give them a little money. I once began to preach at a little church in rural Wisconsin, and immediately, you can guess, people were were mad at me. And a man in that community set up an appointment, came into my office. And that man sat down on that chair, and he said, Pastor Bailey, I want you to know that if you keep preaching the way you're preaching, he said, we're going to stop paying you. And some of you know the story. I had been to an auction at the school system earlier that week, and they had sold some, some nice vacuum cleaners. And so I had bought some vacuum cleaners because I have a love affair with vacuum cleaners. Honestly. And I said, would you look in the corner over there? He looked over. He, I said, you see what I'm pointing He said, what, the vacuum cleaner? I said, yep. Yeah exactly the vacuum cleaner. I said, you know something? Until I moved here, I made my living off that vacuum cleaner and other vacuum cleaners. And I love that work and I'm sick and tired of not being able to do it because when I got done cleaning, I could see what I'd done. It was honest work. And I said, you go ahead and stop paying me and I'll pick up that vacuum cleaner and I'll keep using it. But I won't stop preaching to you. No. No. You never want to have a religious leader who who cares for your soul because they get paid. Let me tell you, anybody who is a faithful shepherd, you could not pay them to do their job. You couldn't pay them to do their job. There isn't enough money. You know what I listen to from you. The only thing that causes pastors to do their work is love. Love. And the only thing that caused Jesus to come here was love. His Father's love and his submission to his Father because he loved his Father and then his love for us. Greater love hath no man than this that a man lays down his life for his friend. Martin Luther saw all the lost masses and he saw that the Roman Catholic Church had commodified, had had moneyed salvation. They turned it into the exchange of money. They turned it into a product they could sell. And Martin Luther found 95 ways to say, Stop! And in a few years, they excommunicate him. And you go on to Catholic evangelism sites now, and they still spread the the vile lies about Martin Luther, that he was immoral. They can't stand men who turn back to God. And Martin Luther said, Unless you show me that the pages of sacred writ support your position, I will not give in. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me, God. So help me God. Don't ever look at Michelangelo's paintings without thinking about indulgences. Don't ever look at the cathedrals without thinking of indulgences. Don't ever hanker after the scholarship, the scholasticism of the Middle Ages without thinking about Tetzel and his indulgences. Don't ever allow people to intimidate you with large vocabulary about religious things and theology. Don't ever allow it. Because the Bible, even down to the way it's written, it's rhetoric, it's parables, the Bible is Simple. It's the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture. Again, it's a Reformation doctrine. It's not that everything in Scripture is equally simple, but it's that everything you need to know that God has given you eternal life and how to please him, everything that you need for that, no matter what your education is, you can understand it in the word of God. Okay? You don't need me. I'm helpful. But that's all I am. I'm just helpful. And my, my job is to call you to Jesus in faith and then to his word so that you will live a life that pleases him. That's it. That's it. That's all I do. That's it. And all the sophisticates hate this church. But why? Well, you can tell we're not into the commodification of salvation, right? These are chemical barrels. And you say, well, yeah, but look at you. And I say, yeah, but I don't drive a Lexus anymore. I did once, and I told the congregation that I repented, and I was sorry. I got it a good deal used. It was disgusting. I told the congregation, what I just did is disgusting and I will never do it again. Some of you remember. You remember me saying this from the pulpit? Listen, we are not rich. (laughs) And we don't sell you salvation. We call you to take up your cross because Jesus is worthy of dying for. He died for us. Why shouldn't we die for him? You know, I started with the Waldensians, and I told you he sold everything he had. Then he began to preach. Then he did a paraphrase. And then along comes Luther, and guess what? Luther was supposed to be a rich lawyer. His dad wanted him to be a rich lawyer. Nope, nope, nope. He ended up leading the Reformation, and he did the translation of the German Bible that really is still used. Okay? And he ended up getting married. And he had a wife that wasn't impressed with him. If you know anything about Katie, she she was not impressed with Martin. (laughs) Some of the best documents we have in the Protestant world are, are what are called table talk, which are simply people that sat at their table writing down what was said at their dinner table. Right? And you look at John Knox... And you look at Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor. He'd been the number two physician to the queen. And God gave him new birth through the Holy Spirit. And he believed in Jesus Christ. And everybody wanted him to become a pastor of a real rich and famous church. And instead he went to a coastal town in Wales. (laughs) Okay? Then he eventually ended up coming to London and to Westminster. And what happened was some, some good-looking Southern boy came over to London to preach a crusade. His name was Billy Graham. And, and that, that good old Southern boy asked Martin Lloyd-Jones to be on the platform with him and to stand with him when he preached the gospel. And you know what, Lloyd-Jones said, no, I ain't gonna do it. He said, I'm not gonna do it. Why? Well, because they had Roman Catholics and Anglicans on the pulpit. He was acting as if the gospel of Jesus Christ was compatible with the state church and the Roman church. He said, I ain't gonna do it. And man, did it cause a stink. And it's a stink that still stinks to this day among conservative evangelicals in this country. But who can deny how how right he was when you look at what has happened to the Episcopal and Anglican churches? All right? It is always true that religious leaders try to turn salvation into something they can sell you. Through the sacraments, through indulgences. Do you remember what happened to Jesus when he came to this earth? Do you remember he came, at the end of his ministry, he came into Jerusalem, the city of the kings. And in Jerusalem, it was unbelievable the welcome he got. Everybody came out for it. They were singing, and they were clapping, and they were shouting, Hallelujah! Welcome to the the King of Kings, the Zion. The little children were yelling, and the religious leaders were furious. And what seems to have made them most furious was that the little children were, were yelling. And the reason is, little children just won't be restrained. They're just zealous. And so the little children are just screaming and everybody's throwing their cloaks on the road in front of him, mounted on a, a colt. And uh, they, they, they strip branches off the trees. They're waving it at him and the religious leaders are furious. And the religious leaders look at the children and say, to Jesus, in effect, they say, shut them up. <laughs> and Jesus said what? Jesus said, if you shut the little children up, you know what's going to happen. He says, the rocks are going to cry out. (laughs) And then, do you remember what Jesus did? He didn't bask in his glory. He went directly to the temple and he took out a whip and he just whipped the snot out of all the people selling salvation in the temple. He threw over their money. You try to go. You try to go into Walmart and do this. Try to flip up the cash registers and, and throw the money. Ever, you see how far you get. He flipped. It, he threw the money. He whipped them. And the only thing I can't imagine why it's not recorded in the Gospels is that nobody punched him. He went directly from being walked as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords into cleaning the money changers out of the temple. And here's what Jesus said. And this is our text for the morning. And it's okay to laugh because it's coming at the end instead of the beginning. Jesus said this. Then some Pharisees, this is at Matthew 15, then some Pharisees and scribes, Pharisees and scribes are pastors and elders, or pastors and elders and seminary professors, really. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress what? The commandment of God. <laughs> do you see this? Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God, he is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your traditions. You hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And this is what's going on in the church today. We have all our traditions, all the things that we think are going to save us, all the right ways of speaking about God all the right vocabulary, all the right degrees, all the right Bible translations, the right churches, the right denominations, the right membership. And God not only doesn't give a plug nickel for it, God abominates it. God will have none of it. Because what? Well, because God actually loves us. And what he wants is our heart. Man looks on the outward appearance. But God looks on the heart. And you see, God is God, and we are not. And we can't hide from him. We can't hide from him. And so you have your choice and your choice is to love him as he is in all his glory and then to honor his word. Or become Roman Catholic. Go ahead. Knock yourself out. Work the system. I'll end with this. I was talking to a man recently in a hospital up in Indy. And he was a good man. He'd done a tour or two over in Afghanistan. You could tell he loved his wife. They were in there. Their child had really serious problems, and I think it had seven or eight surgeries already. And it was just sweet to see a real man tender with his wife, there sticking with his child. And at one point, we began to talk to him. Asking him whether he was a Christian. Did he go to church? Did he have faith? You know, And it was obvious there was nothing. And then the question was, well, but, but, but do you go to church? And he, he allowed that he was Roman Catholic. And I don't remember exactly the conversation, but what I remember is, you know, we were probing, probing, pushing. And he said, you know, he said something like, uh, well, you know, um, to be Catholic, this this is not how he put it, but this is sort of what he said. He said, to be Catholic, you work the system. You work the system. You know? And then he allowed that he didn't bother working the system. And you know, what he was saying was, the Catholic Church sells salvation, so I'm, I'm not interested, but I'm Catholic. And listen, guys, this has always been the way, this is why the Pharisees murdered Jesus. They murdered him. They murdered him. Because Jesus upset The money changers' tables, he upset their commodification of faith. And we we must not do that. We must listen to Scripture and following it. Have our hope in grace alone. Come on, through faith alone in Christ alone. That's our faith. That's our faith. Okay? That's our faith.